Volume 1, Chapter 17 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 17 Tis right, tis just, to fill contempt for vice, but he that shows it may be over nice. Crab. From the same to the same, May 19th. Oh, Miss Catherine, Miss Catherine, exclaimed Ellen, bursting into my room this afternoon, without even delaying her progress by a knock. Oh, Miss Catherine, you do not know what has happened. I am so heartsick, so miserable. My first thought was of Evelyn and her infant, and I could hardly command my voice to inquire if any accident had befallen either of them. They are well, quite well, replied Ellen, but poor little Netta and her parents, they have turned out so badly. All my exertions for them have been worse than useless, and I am now quite discouraged. Pray tell me what has happened. Why, yesterday I met Billy returning home just towards dark, empty-handed and dreadfully bruised, as though he had been severely whipped. Indeed, he was in so much pain that he could hardly walk, and the nice little check blouse which I had made for him was torn into ribbons. Although he was suffering so much, he was too proud to cry and braved it out. I insisted upon his telling me what had happened, but could not induce him to speak until I had bribed him with the promise of a shilling. He then informed me that after selling the usual number of books for Mark, he went to the Sun office to purchase some newspapers. After having bought five or six, as he was waiting for change, he laid down his own papers on the counter just over a pile of others. The change was handed to him, and as the salesman was attending to a crowd of customers, he took up his bundle, and with it eight or ten other papers which lay beneath. He had sold nearly all the papers at his own corner, when somebody came behind him and knocked him down, flogged him with a cowskin, emptied his pockets, and left him lying in the street, with a crowd of little ragged fellows, laughing and jeering at his mishap. He acknowledged that he had been beaten by one of the clerks of the Sun office. I tried to convince him that the sin he had committed should grieve him much more than the pain he had received, but he either had too little rationality to distinguish right from wrong, or is hardened in vice, for he boldly disagreed with me. I did not expect to change his nature by a miracle, but entertained hopes of influencing him at some future period. Those hopes are now almost entirely destroyed. So much for Billy, but that is not half. I call to see his mother today to carry her another paper of cocoa shells, and some socks which I had just finished knitting for her baby. But, oh, Miss Catherine, if you had only beheld the scene which presented itself to my eyes when I opened their room door! The father was lying stretched out upon the floor, his face flushed, and his eyes closed. I at first thought he had been seized with a fit, and bent over him in alarm, but the strong odour of his breath betrayed that his stupefaction arose from brandy. 
I turned to the mother. She was staggering about the room, perfectly regardless of the baby who was kicking and screaming in Netta's arms. Can it be possible? Could the modest, decent-looking woman have been intoxicated? inquired I. Too possible and too true, returned Ellen. I spoke to her, and she answered me in the most insolent manner. All her usual humility and decorum of deportment had vanished. I could hardly restrain my tears. I walked up to the bed where the old grandmother lay, and though her breath also indicated that the tempting cup had not passed her lips untasted, she still retained her senses. I am afraid I did not choose a fitting moment, but how could I help warning her against the use of ardent spirits, and pointing out the misery which they engendered? She strenuously denied having tasted any liquor, or that any had ever been brought into the room. I pointed to her son on the floor and asked, how came he in that state? She answered by again denying that she or any of the family had tasted a mouthful of spirits, and called upon Netta to declare whether or not she spoke the truth. I looked at Netta warningly to prevent her from speaking an untruth, but she, with an unruffled countenance, looked up and, oh, it was horrible to hear such young lips utter a falsehood with the coolness and self-possession of callous vice. Ellen paused. Go on, said I. I have done, she replied. That is all. I came away disgusted and disheartened. I have given this woman the ability to earn money, and I have only placed in her hands the means of indulging her vicious propensities. Is it any wonder that I am discouraged? But you will not forsake them at the very moment when they have most need of your counsel and influence. Remember, it is they who are sick that need a physician, not they are who are whole. But what further interest can I take in them? returned Ellen. There would be but little merit in doing good to those only in whom your heart was interested, to those by whom your fancy was pleased, or your feelings excited. Strive to ameliorate the condition of these unfortunate people, and you will soon find that you take a true interest in their welfare in consequence of your exertion to benefit them. Do you not remember that beautiful passage from Kant, where he remarks, When it is said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, it is not meant thou shalt love him first and do good to him in consequence of that love, but thou shalt do good to thy neighbor, and this thy beneficence will engender in thee that love to mankind which is the fullness and the consummation of the inclination to do good. You are right, always right, said Ellen. I will not forsake them, nor diminish my exertions for their welfare. But how can we eradicate this dreadful habit of intemperance, which must inevitably ruin them in spite of us? We will hope that it is not a confirmed habit, but even should it be so, we should not despair. The mother we can probably influence by threatening her with the loss of your patronage. 
You must watch her closely, at the same time strengthening her by your entreaties and counsel. If she errs again, withdraw your protection, and when she finds herself in the same state of destitution in which you first discovered her, she may repent. Then you may make a second trial, and again afford her assistance. As for the father, you must induce him to sign the temperance pledge. He is forced to be idle, and without this restraint, the inclination to temporarily banish trouble by intoxication may be too strong for resistance. Ellen left me, grateful for my advice, and prepared not merely to follow it, but to improve upon my suggestions. May 21st Long, very long, I have endeavoured to conceal from myself, as from you, that the conflicting emotions daily struggling in my heart are undermining my health. The days of my youth are ever rising before me. Pity and latent affection are ever warring with principle and reason. The reproachful and supplicating eyes that morning and night encounter mine haunt my unquiet slumbers. Alas, how difficult it is to forget ourselves, our own past happiness and present sorrows. With the lip we may seem to remember others only, but in the heart we are too sure to find ourselves enshrined as our own idol. Could we but wholly displace this false god, then indeed, and then only, could haste of true angelic felicity." I am feeble and ill, and daily growing worse. There is neither hope nor help for me but in flight, and fly I must, and that quickly. My sweet friend, Amy Elwell, whom I trust you have not forgotten, has been recommended by her physician to try the Sulphur Springs in Virginia, for the benefit of her health. It has long been feared that she is consumptive, well may parents be alarmed for her safety, she is their only child, and the sole heiress of her father's hardly earned wealth. They intend accompanying her to the springs, and in the fall they are to take a tour through the southern states. A few days since, Amy, remarking my obvious debility, asked me how I would like to join their party and travel with them, I at first conceive the project to be impracticable, for my income is too limited to procure me such an indulgence. But my health continuing rapidly to fail, I have now concluded to encroach upon the capital and accept Amy's proposal. I may be obliged to deprive myself of many comforts and perhaps some necessaries on my return. But what are the comforts money can purchase if it cannot procure the inestimable blessing of health? Amy was overjoyed at my determination, and Mr. and Mrs. Elwell were kind enough to express themselves delighted at the prospect of my company. They leave in a week, but I have a few preparations to make, and should be ready, bag and baggage, in less time. Most sincerely do I regret my separation from Evelyn, and less hardly deeply from Ellen. Who shall say what changes may overshadow or brighten their existence before we meet again? But throughout my life I have had cause to thank heaven for this one blessing, 
that the future was hidden from our view. May 28th. We start tomorrow. Seven o'clock will find us on board of the steamboat for Philadelphia. This evening I bade Evelyn a tearful adieu. She placed her baby in my arm and besought me to remember it and her. What a misfortune it is that Evelyn is so constitutionally nervous. Forebodings of coming evil, evil that indeed cast its shadows before us, oppress her in the midst of her purest joys. As she imprinted fervent kisses upon my lips and forehead, she shuddered and wept, and once or twice sobbed out, Shall I be as happy when I see you again? I shall not. I feel that I shall not. I may never be so happy again as I am now. I call these presentiments or premonitions unfortunate, but they would be otherwise did they teach us to guard against impending evil. But few heed the warnings which many hear. Mrs. Willard, in bidding me farewell, presented me with a couple of coquettishly demure caps, which she had been inventing for herself. I have no doubt that in offering them she felt they were the most valuable gift of which she could beg my acceptance, for that which enhances personal charms must ever, in her eyes, be unsurpassed in value. She took me aside after I had accepted the caps and said in a very kind and sympathizing voice, It is really almost time for you to begin to wear caps. They would become you. You are going to be amongst strangers and must consult appearances. I see one or two silver hairs impertinently mingling themselves with your brown ones. I have heard of a very safe and excellent dye. If you would like to make use of it, I will give you the recipe. I thanked her, but politely declined making any attempt to repair my charms for the present. I was convinced by her manner that this unexpected refusal spared me from no little advice on the subject of youthful looks. Mrs. Willard, in the enthusiasm of the moment, was about to commit a great imprudence. In a few minutes more, all the secrets of her toilette would have been confided to me. This confidence would not have strengthened our friendship. She would soon have repented her own rash haste, then mistrusted, and then perhaps hated me because she had voluntarily unveiled herself to my eyes. Mr. Merritt next bade me adieu and said, in losing you, we lose a true friend, whose place no substitute can fill. Mr. Willard and Ellen accompanied me home, for Ellen wished to delay the moment of our parting, besides which she thought that the walk would benefit her father. Mr. Willard is hardly less taciturn than formerly, but now he at least listens, though he does not speak, and a good listener, you know, is sometimes preferable to a great talker. Ellen conversed without restraint in his presence, and told me of Netta's improvement, of Nancy's repentance, and of Dan's obstinate refusal to sign the temperance pledge. "'You must write and tell me all about them,' said I. "'Right, to be sure I will,' replied Ellen animatedly. "'That will be one of my greatest consolations.' 
but how busy I shall be! You know that I have commenced the translation of my second French tale, then I am reading Dickens works to papa, and I have considerable sewing for Netta to accomplish. Why, I shall not have a minute for myself! Nor half a minute for the blue devils, replied I. Ah, if they ever attack me again, answered Ellen, I have a panacea. You have placed in my hands a talisman with which I may defy them. We had reached Fleecer's, and Ellen threw her arms around my neck as she tenderly kissed me for adieu. At the same time, she told me that she and her father would rise with the sun to meet me at the steamboat tomorrow morning. When I entered the parlor at Fleecer's, although it was quite late, Mr. Elton was reclining upon the sofa, evidently awaiting my return. He rose and begged me to be seated, but I declined, for I dreaded a lengthened interview. "'I must bid you good-bye,' said I, in a tone of assumed sprightliness. "'I start to-morrow morning.' "'Must you go? Must you indeed go?' inquired he, seizing my hand. I had scarcely enough strength or courage to withdraw it, for his was hot and tremulous. "'The fates have decreed it,' replied I, with forced gaiety. "'I look forward to a delightful jaunt.' and I trust I shall return in such robust and unladylike health that your gentility will hardly permit you to recognize me. You are happy that you can jest, said he with a sorrowful look. But unhappy that I monopolize all the mirth, returned I. When you depart, you carry mine with you, was his serious answer. I might have retorted and leave much of my own behind, but my lips were not at that moment in communication with my heart, and they spoke differently. Good night and good-bye, said I suddenly, for I felt that I could not much longer command myself. Good-bye, replied Mr. Elton laconically, but I saw that he could say no more. We shook hands, both tried to smile, and both failed. We bowed, and I withdrew. Ah, uh, had we known no severer parting, this might have seemed painful, but our joys and sorrows are only great or trivial by comparison, and my present grief lost its poignancy when compared to one greater affliction. And now that I have said adieu to all, I must whisper it to you also, my cherished friends. I shall continue to write you at intervals, but my letters may not be frequent. Farewell. Good spirits attend you. End of chapter 17